1: Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you get through this election. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. And let's do this indeed. Let's get out and vote. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. We have Fred Chong Rutherford joining us. And uh, he's a good friend that we made at The Magnet. But before we get to that, I do want to explain Why we have an episode up already. It usually happens midday on Tuesdays, Eastern time in America. Well, it's because today is an election day. And since this episode's over an hour, I thought, why not give you something that you can listen to while you're standing in line to vote? If you are heading to the polls, thank you for going to vote. And if you weren't planning on heading to the polls, I urge you to vote. We have information in the bio, a link in the bio that can tell you if you're registered and where your polling station is. I urge you to vote for Joe Biden. A lot of people are saying, vote, get out the vote. I urge you to vote. Please vote. I'm going to go a step further and tell you to vote for Joe Biden. Why? Because it's better for America. We can't take four more years of someone who denies science and denies the press was, is legitimate and denies anyone who disagrees with him is legitimate. He, he is bringing out the worst in America and not just the Proud Boys in the Boogaloos, though that is very scary, but in just about everybody, he is bringing out the worst. And we can't take more of kids in cages and denying climate change. And it's just awful. If you're on the far left and you are apathetic because Biden isn't far left enough for you, vote anyway. And I'll tell you why. It's because you're not going to get the progress you want with four more years of Trump. It may never happen with four more years of Trump. And at least in some states, like in New York, you can vote for Biden-Harris on the working families ticket, a progressive ticket. And that lets the Democratic Party know that there are a lot of people who want progress. So go out and vote under that ticket. There's no reason not to. And if you are a moderate or right of center person who voted for Trump, I urge you not to do that this time. If you're on your your way to the polls, please don't do that this time. Economists are saying that Biden is better for the economy. So there is no excuse. And I know there's some people who are voting for Trump because they're worried about taxes. Well, look, That means you make $400,000 a year. And to you, might I say, head over to thereitispod.com slash support, where there are two ways that you can support the podcast, uh, one time or monthly, because you have the money. No, uh, I'm half kidding. But seriously, the economy is going to be better with Joe Biden. That's going to be better for you in the long run, even if your taxes go up. And if you are someone who somehow listens to this podcast and you are a diehard Trump supporter, I urge you not to do it. I urge you to vote for Joe Biden because you can do better and you deserve better than Donald Trump. Now, on to today's episode, giving you something joyous to listen to while you stand in line, is Fred Chong Rutherford, a good friend that we've made here in New York. He has some interesting stories. He's a great storyteller. He's super funny. Uh, We laugh and we talk about a ton of things. It's a really great chat. So here's my chat with Fred Chong Rutherford.
0: And this is my big picture hypothesis right now. And I could be so wrong about this. I'll just say this up front. So it could be that it's 20 years from now and I'm selling hot dogs in front of because that's my that's always my go my default is like I will sell hot dogs somewhere because I could do that. I'd be good at it. So it could be twenty years from now, I'm selling hot dogs. you run into me, you're like, Fred, and I go, Jason, you know, you're pulling up in your in your space limo because everything Uh is space. limo, like at that point, and you pull up and you're like, "Fred, what's going on? I go, oh, not much, Jason. I've adopted a bad British accent and I sell hot dogs. I was so wrong about my hypothesis 20 years ago about the media industry. Would you like mustard?
1: <laughs> you, you have said this before, and there is no scenario where I'm getting somewhere in the industry and you aren't. <laughs> well, say it's possible. It's possible. And Look, like, if I'm getting somewhere, I'm bringing you with me. Okay vice, <laughs> vice
0: versa vice versa too. although I will say this that like I have made another version of this of this I've said this dumb bit like in another way, but I mean this hundred percent. the first one of y'all that gets to go to the Emmys, you have to invite me because I want to sell hot dogs on the red carpet at the Emmys. That is the best charity opportunity ever. would sell you sell so many hot dogs because people want to eat. I've been to that. I've been to the Emmys. It's like you get people get hungry. They look fancy, but they're drunk. You know, they need like drunk food, and also yeah. too, real good, real good charity activities. So that's
1: that's. Danny DeVito thing. would definitely buy a hot dog from you uh, on the oh, Emmys sure. red carpet. Oh, for sure. I think I think Amy <laughs> Adams would. I think Amy Adams. Would. I could see that. I could see that. Now I want to talk about your background in in comedy because I know that you do stuff in media Mm -hmm. and you're a writer Uh, you you write at Magnet on a sketch team and you've been writing for sketch teams at Magnet for a while now you've studied at UCB and at Magnet, you're a performer as well as a writer, Mm -hmm. but when did performing comedy start for you?
0: That's a good question I, probably like many people, I started when I was very little like And I started as a self-defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Like I figured out that, Oh, these kids around me, they're sort of bullying, not quite always understanding that the bullying was their expressions, like of of racism in a small town in the U S you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sometimes the teachers and other folks too. So not quite putting that together at first, but starting to realize that, you know, if I said something funny and they laughed, that would, I, I'm not going to get bullied in that moment.
1: Right. Well, it's like that Harry Shearer quote that people get in comedy so they can control how people laugh at them.
0: Yeah. That's, that's true for me too. So that's, that's a start for me. And so also entertaining myself, like there were all these things that I thought were so funny. And so if I felt sad, I'd see like some dumb thing on the Muppet show and, and, <laughs> if I could repeat the dumb thing from the Muppet show for myself, that would make me happy. But then immediately getting self-critical, I, I had like such a critical ear, like as a, as a little kid, <laughs> I'd like, you know, Kermit the Frog would say something, and Kermit would be like, hi-ho, this is Kermit the Frog. And then I would try to repeat that myself, and would come out like,
1: hi-ho, this is Kermit
0: the Frog. And I'd be like, that's not right. That's, that's not Kermit's <laughs> voice. So, you know, practice like that stuff. I could never figure out Donald Duck or Bugs Bunny. But I little- could
1: never get uh, any of the ducks.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's there's something like uh, there's something like manic and also just guttural about the voice that I never have been quite mm-hmm. able to quite get right. And so making up all these little weird voices, you know, just to imitate what I'm hearing on TV. I learned British accents because of Monty Python because I was the mm. same thing. I was like. Oh, this Monty Python thing makes me laugh like an idiot. Let me repeat it for myself so I can be happy when I'm by myself or something. And then, like hearing, like you know, uh, uh, that
1: parrot is dead.
0: You know, it's just that's a very bad police impression. But then my little kid voice would be like, "That parrot is dead." And like, "No, that that's not right. You got to keep practicing." And so, just that's how I learned to do all those weird accents and voices and everything. And then eventually, you start to entertain yourself with combinations of all that weirdness. <laughs> so then suddenly it's like you're the you're the extra weird kid who's wandering around talking to himself in weird voices because you are rehearsing.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> well, what were you rehearsing for at that stage? Like, what uh, what was the hope that you would eventually get? Did you want to get into performing?
0: I I did, but I didn't realize it at first. I thought that I literally thought that most of the time that I was preparing myself for like, I guess the little kid version of tough crowds. It's like, okay, if I run into this bully, maybe I can do this weird bit and then that will change like the conversation in those moments too. But then, you know, that also started to change how people interacted with me when I was a kid. Cause I started to become like the serious self-serious slash funny one a lot of times. And then that sort of grew like over time. And then mm-hmm. later, I would, like, perform, like, for my friends. I think probably a lot of people have done some version of that where you come up with all these weird bits and you're with your high school buddies or whatever and, you know, you get in those you get in those moments, like, where... I don't know if you ever had this. I think a lot of people have this, like, where you're with your friends at that age and you get into a conversation and everyone has, like, their bit or thing to say... Like when you're in those like kind of conversations, like, Oh my gosh, did you see Mr. Billups today? Oh yeah. He was such a no, no, no. And then everyone has their little thing to say about Mr. Billups. And then it's almost like you're on a round table, like talk show or something, which that's to me, it's like, I think the most podcasts just evolve, like from some comedians remembering what it was like when they were in high school and saying, let me just put that on the air, like somewhere too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, so I, so that was the thing that I would often think about too, is like, okay, the next time, <laughs> the next time I'm with my buddies, I'm going to really kill him because I've got this excellent impression of Mr. Holland from our <laughs> class. I could do an do this Mr. Holland impression like perfectly and they'll crack them all up. And so then that was like the first thing. Uh, then the next thing after that was a radio show
1: uh, that me and my friend Bob. Oh, wow. Done. So and, and when, where were you doing that radio show? So I grew up in this town called
0: Long Beach, Washington. Yes population just about like a thousand people at the time it still has like under two thousand people so super small town and uh the big city for us is this city called astoria okay uh, astoria oregon so if you ever saw kindergarten cop teenage mutant ninja turtles three if you saw um uh the goonies goonies is set like in astoria and that was like the big city for us so oh wow we would go there if you wanted to go see a movie cause there's no movie theater. So it's like about, you know, about 30, 40 minute drive, uh, depending on how fast you go and how many police are out and things like that. And then, uh, you get to this and it's a super small town. It's, it's a very small town, but to us, it was like, Oh, we're, Hey, we're going to Astoria. Okay. Like, we're going to go to a movie. So you'd get like kind of slightly, maybe slightly dressed up mm-hmm. and, you know, go see a movie or whatever, like over there.
1: But, they yeah had, that went away. I not to cut you off, but dressing up to go somewhere a little bit went away i when I was a little kid, you had to dress up if you were gonna go to a restaurant yeah we it, it, there was a
0: mix of that like I still remember it, it's like sometimes too like our version of dressing up wouldn't be it wouldn't be like you putting on like a nice jacket. It might be that okay, well, I'm gonna put on my paisley shirt. <laughs> or no, those are those are like my good jeans. <laughs> were the good jeans, not you know, not those ones too. But they, <laughs> so they have a uh, a public radio station over there, ninety one point nine KMUN FM, and so uh, Bob was a guy who had moved in from Boston to a small town, and that was a lot of culture shock, like for him. And we eventually made friends because we were both you know, kind of nerdy. Although my, my outside that looked like a jock because, you know, I was a football player and everything, but we, we still made friends and he introduced me to a lot of indie music. And he had just heard that KMUN had advertised and said like, hey, if you want to be a community volunteer, you can have your own show on the air. So we said, okay, this this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and we'll, we'll take the classes over there. And then we'll, we'll have like our own show, like at this, at this point. And like, yeah, that sounds really cool. And um, I had a car, so that helped. And then uh, I remember when we got to the station, I know what Bob wanted to do. Bob wanted to do an indie music show. And I know what I want to do, which is I just wanted to do my dumb voices like on the air.
1: That's <laughs> what I was wondering if you were, <laughs> if that's how the, the voices came in. Uh. Yeah. Like I remember it, at the first
0: class too, uh, I made the uh, the volunteer coordinator, she laughed because we were working on the station ID parts and it came to me and she said like, Oh, can you just do a station ID like for us? And you know, this, this is kind of what it sounds like. Okay. Now you try. And so then I just went, <laughs> I just did, but I basically just did like this voice and said exactly this. I said, uh, 91.9 KMUN FM, Commune your source for hippie love. And she just, she loved that because like I, because to me, like when I heard KMUN, I thought, Oh, Commune. That must be what everybody calls it she says nobody has ever called this place commune before but yes that is a very accurate thing to say like about the station too so that was a good kind of kickoff like for all of that so how long did you do that uh we did that show until i went to australia uh so we we did and it had like the, the title was the bob and fred show And it was basically us getting together on Fridays and doing like just this three hour radio show and Bob would play music. He would let me select like some music. Most of the music I selected was really bad uh, heavy metal, but also like some classic heavy metal. So a lot of like seventies Van Halen and uh, Queen and just things like that. And then I would do all of like these random radio bits, like with Bob too. And, And basically the only thing I was ever trying to do was just, you know, try to crack Bob up it was like, if he could, if I could make him mess up on the air, I, I thought that was really delightful. And so mm-hmm. if that could happen, it was, that was a good day. And I would bring all of like these, these stupid bits. Um, I, I had a whole thing on, on that show. I had a really bad impression of Bill Clinton and Al Gore, but I made Bill Clinton into Dr. Frankenstein because that way he could call Al Gore, Al Gore. So it was like, Hey, uh, uh, Al Gore, uh, can you try to help me with this tax? policy and get the stitched in. And, and then Al Gore's voice was, sure, Bail, I'd love to help you, but my hump is hitting the doorframe. You know, just stupid, like high school stupid stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, so we did that. And then uh, I was going to go off to college and my football coach got this opportunity for us to go to Australia to go play football for a little while. And uh, I did that and then came back and thought like, okay, well I'm back. And then I'll get to have my end of the summer. And then I'm gonna go off to college. And then uh, my test scores never got to the university of Washington. So I got stuck in the town for a little while longer. So I did a few more of those shows like with Bob just to keep my sanity. And then eventually like went off to college, like in January um, yeah. of 1993. So.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I do know from you know, being friends with you, you, you've told me that when you were in college, you you were seeing Death Cab for Cutie before they were famous, and seeing how they became uh, what they became. You saw a lot of things there, and did a lot there as well.
0: Yeah, it was random because I I was in high school and graduating from high school when two things happened at the same time the first one was that uh seattle punk music had become a thing it was called grunge and so that was everywhere so if you had -hmm. seen a band or were in like the area you saw like all of like these bands like before anyone else had ever seen them play like i saw nirvana play when i was in uh like a junior like in high school before Uh like their album like had gone national like at that point too because they were from the area like uh, mm-hmm. uh um, I didn't know like Chris Nova Selick, but he he was in like a he lived in a small town that would have theoretically been like a football rival for us but they were too oh. small for our town, our <laughs> town. Thousand people but that town was too small so uh, Raymond Raymond Washington and uh but when I got to Bellingham it was like that had that had exploded and then at the same time that same year the internet was commercialized. And so .com's like the first websites that were starting to appear. So that was like my college, was all of that happening. And then being in Bellingham, which is a a weird place because uh, part of the whole reason that I think that Bellingham participated in the music scene, my theory is is that it's two things really. The the first theory is is that it's because it was along I-5. And so if you did a concert in Vancouver, And we're going to go to Seattle. You could stop in Bellingham at a college town and do a concert there if you Mm -hmm. had a venue like to play in. So a lot of bands come in and play like in Bellingham for that reason. And a few promoters got really wise to that, like very quickly at that time. So they knew how to book them. Like one guy in particular, Sean Spain, he's an amazing human being. And he was, if you met him at that age, you would think he's some really rough and tumble kind of indie punk sort of guy because he dressed like really flamboyantly and he had like black fingernails and everything but he was the, literally one of the nicest human beings that I have ever met like to this day in my head he's like the prototype for how people in the music industry should behave like when I would meet other people in the music industry I would compare them to Sean mm. and I'd be like this person is nowhere near as nice as Sean is <laughs> and, uh, and so so he was one of the people that got really smart about how to pull like bands in like during like sort of like that era. And I just happened to be in college like at that time too. So that's one thing. Then the other thing that's going on is is that Bellingham just attracted some pretty cool artists, like from around Washington, like people who were like in high school and, you know, they liked Pearl Jam and they liked Mother Love Bone and they liked, Mm -hmm. uh, they knew why Temple of the Dog like was such an important record Ah, uh, given what happened to Mother Love Bone, and they they had heard Nirvana, they knew uh, Mud Honey, like they knew you know you knew like all these sort of other sort of bands from that perspective, and it drew like a lot of really cool artists to the college at the time. And so then it's like my freshman year, uh, there was a band uh, called Crusters Chronomid, or not freshman year, sorry sophomore year. Uh, there was a band called Crusters Chronomid who our dorm sponsored them for. Uh, a show there was I don't exactly know how this happened I, I think it was a random sort of one-off thing it was like a battle of the bands like between dorms so the idea was that your dorm would have like a band that you would sponsor and then there'd be a battle of the bands so the, the band that we sponsored was called Cruster's Chronomid and uh, Cruster's Chronomid was a guy named uh, Armand Bond uh, a, another guy named uh, Mike Salo and then uh, Jason McGurr who's the drummer for uh, Death Cap for Cutie now so that's my my freshman year college roommate had organized like that because we lived in the same dorm still. And so he got them, like, into there too. And so Cruster's Chronomid was pretty amazing, and Armand's a pretty amazing guy. And he ends up being one of the people, like, in that scene because while that's happening, Ben Gibbard is going to college at the same time, and he's forming a band uh, called Pinwheel, which was – that was like the band. Like if you were in high school, like in that area, like people went eat shit like for, for that band. It was kind of amazing. And, uh, but then you've got all these artists and you have people doing all this weird stuff. And I'm still dressing kind of like a jock, like from a small town, because I was even like on the football team really briefly, like at Western. um, And then decided that I like to, you know, smoke weed and act like an idiot. And, Hang out like with music, like folks more instead, and so started doing that stuff. But it was all these folks that started to come together, and there was a pretty amazing uh, group of artists around that I never. I always felt like I was on the periphery of that, but I got like I got to witness like all of it, but wasn't, you know, I wasn't. I was almost like an an audience or on the fly person, or like Forrest Gump, kind of like just in the middle of like these crazy events, like with some like these people that are there and. Eventually a lot of like those folks ended up at the radio station, including Armand. Nick Harmer was the general manager of our station. Um, And then we had a great uh, couple of great like music directors at the station. And that was the other thing is like the passion of these folks for doing music had this really amazing effect on the music industry itself and on that little radio station, because KGS, the, the radio station was KGS FM, uh, mm. specifically eighty-nine point three KUGS FM, Bellingham, one hundred thousand watts, one hundred thousand milliwatts of pure rock, which was one way of saying it was a hundred watt radio station, had like no reach. But we were really, <laughs> we got, we had a really smart um, music director named Matt Shea, and Matt eventually went on to have like a big career with uh, um, a lot of like music labels. He eventually. Like, Clive Davis, like for a while too, for a few years. Um, definitely, and I lost touch with him. But the, you know, he put together, along with uh, this guy, Brian Ritter, who worked at the station, they, they put together this music tracking system that was really great and really easy, like for people in the, the DJs who volunteered at the station to do. So he made it super easy to just keep track of what songs like you were playing. They reported all of that stuff religiously to the College Music Journal. And because of that, kgs got included in the mix like if if college music journal was trying to determine you know th- you've got those different lists of of what is trending and you know what's uh-huh. the top 10 indie music artists or college music uh-huh. artists we were so religious about the reporting that we became part of that mix so our reporting like was pretty uh, important like from that perspective and oh, wow. so uh like like random things um i think that if nick carmer happens to hear this story he will probably have his own opinion about it and he might say something like no that's not how it happened or not it's not quite like this but this is my perspective of how this like happened so nick uh was um we were friends but more like acquaintances like at the time too like you you know how you like you have like it's sort of like at the magnet like you go to the magnet yeah what's going on oh i haven't seen you since i left off you know yeah that kind of thing and so uh, he was so into so many activities, and he was also while he was at KUGS, he was also like running activities at the ASB. It's like so, the, the so the group that would bring bands in, like for us to see uh, there. And uh, Presidents of the United States of uh, was one of the bands that he booked there. Oh, wow. and and he got a CD from the presidents. And the legend is, and the way I understand it is, that he basically just took that CD and put it into the rotation for us, like in, at KUGS. So it wasn't like, doing, didn't quite get permission, like to put it into the mix, but just said like, okay, just put it into the mix. And then the DJ started to fall in love with uh, the music and mm-hmm. so started playing like that stuff. And then eventually that turned into the music charting, like in the college music journal, which that eventually is the thing that is it's part of the story i mean they have their own story and all the stuff but it, it's it's this one tiny random thread that's part of the story of how that band got signed like in the first place and so there's a part of my mind that wow. always I think about that like sometimes. It's like, wow, this Nick eventually will become the bass player for Death Cab for Cutie.
1: <laughs> He's partly responsible for why the
0: president's... <laughs> this band got big.
1: That's pretty dope. Yeah, you did see a lot of cool yeah. stuff while you were there so, and did some cool stuff while you were there. Yeah. When you left college, where did you go? I mean, I know eventually you make it to New York City. Did you immediately go to New York? Uh,
0: I had an adventure in New York while I was in college related to... Uh, related to KUGS. It was almost like, if you ever saw like those TV shows where, you know, like you've got like your normal set for the TV show and then sometimes they'll take like a big trip. The main cast will take a big trip. Like uh-huh, uh-huh. our whole station went to uh, college music journals conference uh, in New York. And I included myself like on the trip because I was like, well, I'm not going to miss this. And a whole bunch of us, there was like a group that was like officially invited. And then other folks that were sort of unofficially invited so like Nick and Armand like were there too. So the band after Cruster's prominence for Armand Bond was a band called uh, Eureka Farm. It was originally called Shed. Mm-hmm. And at the time they went to the College Music Journal, it was called Shed and Shed was uh, Armand Bond, Nick Harmer, originally Ben Gibbard. Uh, he played drums at the first Shed show, but then, uh, Jason McGurr replaced him, like, as the drummer because, you know, Ben was with Pinwheel and stuff. And they were all friends, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he shows and everything. And so they had recorded this amazing four-track demo uh, that it sounded like a 32-track recording, like, when I heard it. And because that's how they were mixing it. They were essentially playing all these instruments, mixing them down into, like, each channel and doing overlays and everything. And it was really beautiful uh, sort of music. And so they went to that CMJ concert with that tape, trying to get signed and, you know, come to New York and do all of this. And that was like what the environment was like. And I, I had like my own random adventures like in New York uh, during that time too um, a lot of me uh, getting stoned and hanging out with people. And then my personality's is fairly affable. And so, you know, I run into all kinds of people and, and stuff and I'm at this music conference too. I'm going to share a story with you. I've, I told like friends about this, but I've been keeping it, mostly as a friend story for a long time. But since we're friends, I'm just going to go ahead and share it with you. I had okay. I had a life-changing moment at the College Music Journal uh, event because uh, I was talking to... I cannot remember the name of the band too, that this guy was in. I really liked their band a lot. I remember I was just talking to him. We were having this great conversation. He was about to invite me to his show. And the, the conference was at Lincoln Center. And so we're standing outside and it was really hot. And then I looked... And I saw somebody, some old woman had like fainted, and so he was he was just about to give me like some tickets like to go see a show, and then I just ran over to that old woman because it's just how my brain works, Probably, you know, a lot like you and a lot like other folks. Like you see something, you just oh go help this person. So I helped her and got her to her feet and brought her into the into the venue, and she gave me a kiss on my cheek, and then people were like clapping when I brought her in. And I was like what, and then that turned into this weird like. Like mini story at the conference, because eventually that turned into that she had that I had given her CPR and saved her life, and like this, like, <laughs> okay. it got like got like so dramatic. And then I would like deny that I would say no, 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 it was no big deal. It's like oh my god, she's so modest. No, 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 it's not. I didn't it's nothing <laughs> modest. Like she just it and I helped her inside. She's like oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> and then it eventually got all the way to the uh, to the folks who were running the uh, running the conference. And I remember the, the, uh, person who's running the conference, like she came up to me and she was like, bless you. You are such a good person okay, what for what? Like I was just, it's no big deal. I was just helping her. She's like, no, we want to, we want to do something special for you. So we're going to move you to green room duty. Cause I was one of the volunteers of the conference. So I got to move to hang out in the green room, uh-huh. uh, like with some, you know, with some celebrities and everything. And I remember, uh, that when I went over to the green room, uh, MCA was in the uh, from the oh cool was in the green room and it was me this kid from New York who had like this the thickest like New York accent you ever heard and it's like the the memory that stands out the strongest is like me looking at this kid and him looking at me and him going like man you ever had bagel from New York. (laughs) <laughs> the bagels are so good man you should eat one of these bagels because you, you're live from seattle right <laughs> yeah i'm from seattle it's like oh you you need to eat a new york bagel here have, have this one eat it you know what makes it better than any other bagel and i'm like no it's just the water the water <laughs> is what makes look like delicious <laughs> and so i'm talking to him and then i'm looking over at mca and mca just kind of looks at me and i just kind of kind of give him a high and uh-huh. then he, he does the high back and everything and i'm like I look at the kid and the kid's like, you should put cream cheese on your bagel. And I'm like, and I just look at him and I feel like, <laughs> and I'm like, we should just go to like, to talk to MCA. Like, let's go talk to MCA. he's like, I'll, I'll, that's MCA, man. I can't talk to MCA. I'm like, he seems like a nice enough guy. Let's just go say hi to him. He's like, maybe you should give him a bagel. And I'm like, not well, you know. And so, so I just walked over to MCA and I said, hey, uh, my name's Fred. Uh, how you doing? Do you need anything? He's like, no, I'm good. And then I just asked him this question, which was, uh, I understand that you're a uh, Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, I'm a Zen Buddhist. Uh, how do you meditate? And that turned into a conversation, uh, a really cool conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like 20-something and not quite comprehending the conversation that I'm having, too. But it's also part of my nature is, is that like, um, I tend not to freak out around celebrities. Mm-hmm. There's an effect to that. like really good improv folks, I'll freak out about like, you probably see me at the magnet, like sometimes like, oh my, that's, that person's a Kitty Hawk. Oh my gosh. And then like, (laughs) I'll have a hard time, you know, but in in most situations I'm pretty chill like about that. So we're just having this cool conversation about Buddhism and life and everything. And then at the end of that, I've told other people like this story before too. And at the end of that conversation, uh, he looked at me and he said, I, I asked him basically a question that was like, how did you decide, to be the person that you are that that's the gist of the question i was trying to ask him and he looked at me and he said my life is really simple it just comes down to one thing uh i just decide to do awesome shit with epic people and that's <laughs> it and and i was like wow okay and then and then it was like almost like a movie cut like that moment because literally then the people with the headphones are coming in, it's like we need mca like for the conference or everything he's like hey man real nice to meet you here take this and then uh, talk to this person you can go see we're gonna do a set uh tonight uh, with butter eight and you know we're i'm gonna jump on like as mc yoda and you can come see that show if you want to too some of your friends like might be going just go go talk around it's good talking to you man so i was like cool i'm like okay i got get mca's number and then in my head in my head in that moment i was like god what a douchebag that's that was my reaction to that it's like oh, i do awesome uh, do awesome shit with uh, epic people and i'm like i was like oh that's terrible like what a rock star thing to say and uh, it took me about nine years to realize that he just told me a 100% true thing that yeah. that was, that was an absolutely like true statement, but I was, I couldn't process it in that moment. And uh, had a great like trip, came back to uh, Bellingham. I had a similar trip on my own to LA for uh, an animation con- or I basically got invited to go to AFI like for a while um, because uh, I sent a Batman movie script or I sent a Batman animated pilot to Fox News. This is like a different summer. And they said, we really like your script. You should go to AFI to do television writing like for a summer. So it's having like all like these kind of things like happening to me. But I'm too young to understand that like, what the hell? Like the, <laughs> I talked to MCA like randomly. and Oh, I just got invited by Fox to go to, you know, like uh, there's all these things happening to me and I'm not really processing like any of it. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, I'm I'm mostly focused on things like, what are my weird voices? I really like doing promos at the radio station. I smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> I was I drank a lot. I actually got to the point where, um, and you know, I just kind of grooving through life, like through all of like those moments. And I was going to move to uh, Los Angeles to go pursue filmmaking. And then I just had a moment and realized that, you know what, if I go to Los Angeles, like the way I am right now, there's a good chance I could end up like dead in a gutter somewhere. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to Seattle instead. Mm -hmm. So I went to Seattle and then, um, God, I sound like Forrest Gump when I talk about this stuff. Sometimes I can't, (laughs) it's, it's weird. Like thinking about some of these things sometimes. So it's like, I, so I went to Seattle to, uh, pursue, um, getting my head straight. And then I was going to go to law school and then basically ended up like not going to law school. I, I started like my own business via a roofing company and that's a whole other story <laughs> instead of stuff. Okay. But um, you know, and I'm doing the same thing. Like I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm making random art. I'm deciding that I'm going to make short films. I'm making comedy short films. We're doing a lot of performance. We're doing a lot of what you would call alt comedy and performance art right now. But from my perspective, it was us, getting stoned dressing up in costumes and acting like weirdos like sometimes (laughs) and then and then i had like a i had a made-up character that i'd come up with uh who i would go to open mic nights and and do sets like it at shows like sometimes doing like stand-up comedy um i remember uh but the best set that i ever had was i had to follow mitch Hedberg. oh wow he, yeah, because he was in Seattle, like at the time, working on his material. That some of the stuff that would become some of the breakout. I think he'd already been to Toronto, like at that point. He was pretty awesome. He was also really, uh, he he. When you have like a substitute pro- problem and you're trying to get out of it like that, you'd sort of recognize like when someone else is like, okay, that guy's that guy's on the edge too, and mm-hmm. you know. But he he had a killer set. He was pretty clear headed that night. And basically I had a really great set afterwards. It was just 10 minutes of me saying, fuck, I had to follow Mitch Hedberg. And that's, mm. that was basically the whole gist <laughs> of the set, like for, for 10 minutes. It was, it was just variations like a that. It's like, Jesus Christ. like huh? And that that eventually ended with me laying on the floor, like with the microphone saying, like right into the mic, like, I had to follow Mitch fucking Hedberg. I've been working on material <laughs> all goddamn night. You made me follow Mitch. And so, you know, people were loving it. Um, and so I think that that's probably, like, where uh, I learned kind of young uh, that the really the only thing you can do is just, like, I don't know what the right word is for it. I don't want to say, like, brave because that's, like, I'm not, you're not saving, like, someone from a burning building or something. But, like, just that, like, you know, just do your thing and, and try not to worry too much about what people are thinking maybe worry about how they're feeling more than anything else. And so that's all that was, was like 10 minutes of that and vibing like off of the audience with just basically repeating like the same thing over and over again, that they <laughs> like it because we're in the, that feed that we're in that kind of emotional, funny feedback loop that people are in. And, and there's probably some people too, just going like, what's this guy? He has no material. He's rolling around on stage. Kind of looks like, kind of looks like Bruce Lee. What the hell? You know, cause I still have my hair then. So <laughs> like, so and that was the mix of everything that I'm doing. And uh, I'm running this weird business. I've got all these construction clients. We're making these videos. Um, I get invited to uh, – we made, like, I think my favorite out of the ones we made was something called Safety Folder, mm-hmm. which was uh, which was our kind of fan letter to Spinal Tap because that those group of friends, we all really loved the movie Spinal Tap a lot. And so we're, I was like, what if we just made our own improv movie? Like, we just improvise like, all the dialogue. Cool. And, you know, I'll come up with some of the scenarios and then we'll just make it up as we go. And I had this really stupid character, um, my friend Sonny. We were at a party and my friend Sonny uh, was sitting next to me. So she's she's married to uh, my best friend and uh, they, they had just kind of like gotten together and everything. So we're at this party and she had this green folder and she took a label that said open here and she took a piece of duct tape and she just slammed it on the folder and she goes, here, I'm gonna give you this. And then I took the folder and I said, oh, thank you very much for the safety folder. I really appreciate this because it lets me know where I can open the folder. At and I can open it right here. So this weird kind of affected voice that comes out from her giving me this folder. And so we make this dumb movie called Safety Folder, which is all about <laughs> the invention of that folder and you know, so it's this weird character study about this guy named Barney Rombach, and he's really into Dungeons and Dragons. So there's a whole improvised Dungeons and Dragons scene. His best friend is this guy named Bryce Rajkin McLeod, and Bryce uh, was really into martial arts. And so we went to a park and filmed with my friend Mark doing a made-up martial art that was based on his beat. And so that culminates in him putting a. it's just stupid. And so, uh, <laughs> are any of these movie, available anywhere? Uh, they're they're on YouTube. They also screened at uh, a surprising number of film festivals, including they screened at the San Diego Comic Con. That was the weirdest one too. Oh wow! So, and, like this is this is another kind of random <laughs> the Forrest, other Forrest of Gump thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. safety folder this other movie that i'd made named machines and a few others that me and jason had made uh were i was sending them out to film festivals and they were getting picked up and i was getting to go to some of them some of them were in europe so i couldn't actually go attend Mm -hmm. them uh or anything too like like played a film festival in scotland it played in italy i just random like kind of stuff like that and so then i just decided you know what Um, I'm going to send these to Comic-Con because I really like comic books. And so I'm just going to say, hey, I'd like to screen these movies at Comic-Con. Like, what do you think? And I just happened to send them the year that Comic-Con decided to start a film festival. So they were looking for material. So they were looking for stuff. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And that was like, it was the year, um, basically it was the year after Spider-Man had premiered, like at that point. And Mm -hmm. so Spider-Man was actually a big movie. They're mm-hmm. like, okay, we're going to make this presence there. So I got invited to go to Comic-Con to do uh, to screen, like, my short films. So both of these are available on my YouTube channel, but wow. that was the most random thing was, like, getting to go to Comic-Con to screen short films with a whole bunch of people who would eventually build Marvel films, like, a few years later. Um, but I'm not aware of, like, any of that. And, you know, again, I'm wearing my bucket <laughs> hat. I'm smoking a lot of weed still. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> me, me, me and my friend, me and Jason, we – we originally were gonna fly, but then somehow somehow it became a better idea for us to drive instead of fly because we could save money. Also, we wouldn't have to rent a car. But I think the main reason was we thought we could kind of hotbox like along the way too, <laughs> while we're driving like down there <laughs> and everything. And so, uh, so we had this really great trip and and uh and I remember like I you know I was getting to hang out with comic book folks. There were some people that were just randomly mean and jerk offs, like for whatever reason, cause I wasn't famous enough or whatever. Then other times I would meet someone who's like super famous and they were the nicest person like in the world. Got to see Stan Lee again. I hadn't seen him in a few years and he happened to remember me. So he's like, Hey, oh, wow. you're, the, you're the kid who asked me to sign his leg. And I go, yeah. He goes like, <laughs> you, you still a jackass? And I go, kind of. And he was like, uh. you know, so like just stuff like that. And we end up, uh, we end up getting invited like to this dinner, which is basically agents uh, and managers signing a bunch of comic book talent. And then I'm at this table and I'm sitting next to, uh, I've got cards like for managers. It's in my day planner. That's got the KGSFM sticker in it. It's got my number for the beastie boys and loose Groove records. It's got the number for the guys who produced The including Tom Ruger's number. It's like all these folks that um, I could contact. Like if I came back like to LA or could, or could contact like whenever I got there and I'm sitting next to this woman who's like, she's going to be, uh, She wants to be my, my manager. And this is the thing I've been working for is like, uh, and she said, and then I can immediately get you hooked up with an agent. And that's the first conversation that I want to have. And while she's talking to me, I'm looking around, I got my bucket hat on because I won't take it off. And I'm looking around at the table and it's just all these folks, they're having a good time. And then she's like, got this little tiny bottle of perfume and she keeps dabbing it and putting the perfume like on her nipples because she doesn't got She's not wearing like a bra or anything. She's wearing this really loose, like summer dress. And she keeps just having this perfume, like on her nipples, like the whole time that she's talking to me. And I'm looking at it going like, that's weird. but I don't want to say anything because in my head, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, Oh, well, this is just what people in the business do. So this is just perfectly normal. Cause no one else is reacting to what's happening. So I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to go with it and chill. And, uh, and she's like, so, you know, just call me and then, um, there's already, you know, try not to sign with an agent like this weekend. And then uh, let's have that conversation first. And I can help you navigate that like as well. This is like, okay. And so I was like, in my head, part of me was like, wow, you know, you've really, you've really made it. Like, this is it. All you have to do is make this phone call and then you can change like your life like completely. And so me and Jason drive back to Seattle and I've got like my day planner full of all of like these people that I've met. And I can see like my life, like, Uh, charted in front of me too. But then I have this flashback to why didn't you move to LA? It's like, oh, because your head was really screwed up and you were worried that you would become a mess if you moved to Los Angeles. And I'm having this realization as I'm coming down, like from being very stoned. And I'm like, oh, so what am I doing now? I'm really high driving back to Seattle and I'm trying to process all the stuff that just happened. And I'm not quite sure if I'm remembering and processing everything that I saw accurately and, and what's really going on in my headspace and then i just thought about like i just thought about that that manager like putting the perfume on their nipples and so then i just rolled down the window to my car picked up my day planner and i chucked it
1: uh, wow. out of the driver's
0: side window of my car and and jason woke up and he's like what'd you just do and i said i threw my day planner out the window he said like did you keep did you keep mca's phone number i said no that's a bummer and so then you know I just rolled up the window and then uh went back to Seattle and uh basically had a year where I was kind of repeating a lot of the stuff that I had done you know like the same kind of film festivals a couple that I'd been in asked us to do stuff and we made another short film that was a lot of fun um but it just was like man I gotta I gotta straighten myself out like I I gotta figure out like what I really want to do like with myself too and you know, eventually decided. Okay, I'm going to get my MBA, and then uh, I take my tests for my MBA. I do really well, like in the tests. Uh, it's GMAT scores, so I got really mm-hmm, high GMAT mm-hmm. scores. And then you're supposed to um, mail those GMAT scores. You fill in like this four digit code, and that will send the scores like to schools. And I was only intending to go to schools like in Washington State mostly like to save money also to kind of stay near like Seattle and everything too. And then the only thing I can guess is that I just did a transposition error that I filled something out wrong, like in a bubble sheet or put the numbers in wrong or something like that. Which just randomly a school in New York got my, uh, got my scores. And so They called me up and said, well, you know what? Hey, thank you for sending us your DMAT scores. And I was like, I I don't remember sending my scores to a school in New York because I I thought it was a scam like at first. They go, no, uh, you must, we got them. So you must have sent them to us. (laughs) I go, well, I don't remember sending them to your college. And they're like, well, but we have your score. They basically made me a deal. And they said, "Um, look, you got really high scores. We want you to come to the school. So if you can come to the school, we will pay for your tuition.
1: Wow! So that's how you got to New York. Uh, Once you got to New York, you know you're in school. You don't even know how they got the application, but uh, I guess it was something Mm -hmm. you sent out when you were real high or something. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) possible. (laughs) But yeah, but but that was a blessing. That was that was a real great thing. I mean, not only because of what ended up happening. career-wise but I mean just getting to go have a full ride
0: yeah and I I didn't expect to stay in New York because I thought what was I thought that what was going to happen was I would move here and you know still try to run the business from New York and I'd go to grad school and then I'd move back to Seattle and then I would just get to be really cool after that you know because I would I was picturing myself like constantly dropping that I lived in New York. Like i picturing like it's <laughs> three years later and I'm back in Seattle and it's like, well, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, you know, we, we kind of, we, we did things a little different. It's like that, but but that's not, it's not what happened. I, I after about, it's about three months of being here, I realized I didn't, I wasn't gonna go back. And mm. so I sold my business, but I didn't really sell like my business. I sold the, the customer list. To a company because I was sort of the easiest way to get out of it and uh, in hindsight i shouldn't have done that if i had sold it as a business then you know we would be talking like probably from my uh, condo like <laughs> <in> <laughs> somewhere or something but you know but it's all good i'm happy um and then school was pretty cool because at the end of it we the last semester included a trip to the Cannes film festival so that was Mm. how i ended that and i i saw people at can that i knew from you know la or from oh i met this person at san diego comic-con and it was pretty cool i i ended up doing a lot of scams when i was at can uh <laughs> with my girlfriend because you know getting into parties was like a really big deal and so I, we we would pretend that well, it, to be very specific, I would pretend and she would go along with it because she would also <laughs> get into the parties. We would basically pretend that we didn't speak English and that we were from the Singapore Film Commission. And so then we would get into like all like these parties. Like I got to meet uh, Michelle Yeoh. That was pretty cool. Jang Ji yi like folks like that. And not to name drop, but it was just I, it was just amazing. And But it was kind of like sort of living out the last little bit of my 20s you know i was in you know my 30s like by that point but still just edging out of that and then i just remember meeting a lot of film industry business people and just was like oh my gosh and having all those flashbacks like back to the (laughs) the manager who's putting the perfume on her nipples and i was just like ah this isn't (laughs) quite my scene like i don't think like oh there's there's harvey weinstein wow oh wow that is disgusting what is he doing to that person well Mm. I'm assuming it's consensual and now in hindsight it's like no maybe not.
1: Oh, you really and, did see Harvey Weinstein. scene. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, like cuz there's I mean it's camp film
0: festival and we're running around mm-hmm. you know like a like it's a Brady Bunch special but we're at it's there and that's that's all kinds of people like around like everywhere and, and mm. you know and I was just like I I don't know, I, it didn't feel like something that I really want wanted to do anymore like mm-hmm. from that perspective and it was weird because it's like well i been my whole life and still pursuing all these weird kind of entertainment things and i you know the second time like i'd gotten close to the film industry again and then was just like ah, i don't think so this isn't quite like for me by the way i'm not saying the film industry is horrible and i'm not saying that you know there's great people that work in it and there's so many amazing Directors and producers and filmmakers there 's a ton of amazing people in Seattle uh, who make movies and uh, there's it's just it, it is like a really great industry it's just for whatever reason I kept bumping into the the like the slug part of it and so i yeah. didn't really know what that meant I was like what is that me or is it coincidence or is it is this just like what i'm seeing like out of it so i don't know
1: it's so interesting it's like, well, like you can't hit those pockets. I mean, I remember when I graduated college, I called out to I called New York agents, but I also called Los Angeles agents. And this was mm-hmm. not long after 9/11 and the war and and um was was looming and uh the economy was bad. And yeah. I called out these all these agents. I just cold called them just for advice. Mm-hmm. And you know, big city agents and they were the nicest people, <laughs> you know, like you you always hear stories that are just like you know like i don't know from from uh TV shows and movies they make out make yeah. agents out to be the worst, but these were the nicest people they gave really good advice and gave their time and there are nice people in the industry, but then there're these garbage people too that can really suck the soul right out of you
0: yeah, that's like for every awesome producer, agent, manager that you meet. There's also still, although I truly believe that this is changing for every one of those folks, there's still like a Les Moonves who is literally sexually assaulting people as he builds his production career and also uses that as a way to wield power over talent and then hires producers over the course of his career and mentors some of them who also do the same kinds of things mm-hmm. so it's that kind of part of it uh is i feel i'm not naive to think that well it's all gone now but i'm also not so foolishly cynical to believe that that is going to continue mm-hmm. i can't i like that's not that's not who you are that's not who i am that's not who every great artist comedian that i've met they're not like that Mm -hmm. and the people that i connect with like aren't like that either and so on some level it's like well if you can make a living in this industry somehow and you are able to have like some kind of influence or you know if you are like that person who can produce you can just bring this whole other energy to what you do that doesn't have anything to do with that that stuff and you know i'm was still not quite hadn't quite put that thought together. Like at that moment, like when I met, you know, getting done like with grad school, Mm -hmm. but I knew, I just knew that like, for whatever reason I was just running into that, that gross part. And I didn't quite have the confidence to think that I could do something about that. And I also certainly didn't have the confidence to think like, well, I could do something like that by maybe trying to produce or create again or do my own thing. And so, Mm So what I did was I looked for a job and I said like, well, if I can find a job, I'll stay in New York. And if I can't, you know, I'll go back to Seattle I can always put something back together there. I got a job at a really small tech firm. And then I just happened to be here when the, in New York, like when the internet started to come back, like as a sector of business and also as the media industry was sort of recarving and and redoing, uh, making like that transformation, a lot of it like was centered in New York, uh, mm-hmm. which still surprises me, like how much was centered here. But on the other hand, it kind of makes sense given how much television like is really headquartered here.
1: So. Yeah. What about being here made the New York comedy bug bite you? I went to a
0: UCB show mm-hmm. and I I had been to improv shows before, but it it was very different than what I thought, Improv was or could be, but when I went to that it was at the uh Chelsea and it was an ass cat show but, and I just was kind of able to get in uh to the show and I think it was just around i think it was still pretty popular then, but it, it hadn't quite hit that like you know line around gristetti's level mm-hmm. quite yet, you know it was sort of like kind of getting there and I, it's just something about the art scene here in total had kind of captured me and, you know, going to see music and all this. And then uh had come back like from, from can like the itch. And so I started looking for an open mic night and, you know, I just went to an open mic night and started to, I tried to, I remember, I tried to improvise. This was what was going on in my head. I was like, I had seen some improv and I thought, and I knew that some standup was based on the idea of, well, you just go on the mic and you just riff or you don't really have like a set per se, like built up, you know, right there. Um, which isn't necessarily true, but that's what was going on in my head. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go up and I'll just riff about what happened when I was in, in Cannes. And that didn't really work very well, but the part is just none of the jokes like really worked and I'm trying to make things up on the spot, but then The part that started to work was when i just started to tell a story and so at the end i just was telling just a brief story about uh, my friend uh, or classmate uh, who insisted that he hated advertising and then uh, literally stopped mid-rant about how much he hated watch a french toy commercial like while we were walking like down the street which yep, there's a little bit of build up to it and there's ways to make that story funny but that that was like basically the end of the set was that and that kind of got the first response like from the audience at that point so I was like oh okay that's interesting cuz it's never I was never real great at stand up like most of the stuff that I would do that worked was some kind of it, it would you you would call it like alt comedy in New York is what we would call it now and it was just always these things that were a little weird like never like you ever wonder about the you know, I can I can't do that like i I could i could do that if i'm like doing a bad seinfeld impression maybe i could do it that way but i can't there's just it doesn't work for me in mm-hmm. that way but stories do and so then that's what i did is i started to occasionally go out and just go find open mic nights and go tell stories and then i would get itches every once in a while to do other creative things like i got an itch a few years later to make a film again. And I was talking to some friends at work and I just said that digital media has gotten to the point where you can, like one person could make a whole movie like on their own, you wouldn't need like anybody else. And someone says, prove it. And I said, okay, how do you want me to prove it? They said, go make a movie here. And there was like some 24 hour uh, film festival uh, New York city, 24 hour film festival. There's a whole bunch of these that happen now. Sometimes there's other versions of it like the 48 hour film challenge. So I entered one of those on my own and then uh, just I made this really weird short film. It was like the, one of the weirdest things I think I've ever made. <laughs> uh, and that it, started, it started with a bad impression of one of my coworkers at the, at the small internet company I was working at. So he had this sort of strange kind of, it sounded Californian, but not quite. And then every time he spoke, it was like everything was so, sort of ended as a question, kind of, but not exactly. So he had this weird voice, and I just turned this weird voice into uh, a narration, and I just made up the narration on the spot, and then I just filmed a bunch of stuff that goes like with the narration. And it's it's really um, it's a really weird little short film, and uh, it it won it won at the at the best, <laughs> and so. I was like, okay, well, I can still, I, I, guess I still know how to do this kind of stuff, and it's was fun to shoot a whole bunch of random stuff. But the really fun part was doing that all like in such a short period of time. Like, I think I, it took me eighteen hours like to shoot, uh, shoot to shoot, well, to write it, shoot it, make some music for it, wow. edit it, and then get it to them, like at the fest and everything. And so, so I was like, okay, well, I can still do that, and. You know, it's kind of bouncing from job to job and then like still doing open mic nights like for storytelling and really raw kind of working on that and doing experimental things and just all sort of just different elements. And in the meantime, I was also trying to, you know, I was trying to do animation that would come back every once in a while because I can do all these weird ass voices, but (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it feels like, oh, maybe a cartoon is like the right thing to do. But then I would try to do animation and it was just like, oh my gosh, this is excruciating and I'm terrible at mm. it and it doesn't match my aesthetic and it doesn't work and I can't meet anybody who's into it and, you know, to sort of double up on some of like those bits and uh, I'm still writing things and doing all these other sorts of uh, activities too. And then eventually I decide that, oh, you know what? I used to really like puppets when I was a kid. So why don't I do puppets again? And maybe I can just take a class to see, because I taught myself how to do puppetry when I was real little. And I wondered, like, maybe I didn't quite learn it the right way. So what if I just take a puppetry class? That's interesting. And then I can learn the right way to do this. And so I took a class and it turned out that uh, I did learn it the right way. I saw this documentary when I was super little Uh uh, about the Muppet Show. And they had this whole thing where they showed how they did the muppets which was their arms like way up over their heads so Mm -hmm. when i taught myself i just mimicked what i saw on the television and that turned out to be the right thing to do there's little bits Mm -hmm. and nuances with the technique but a lot of it is Mm -hmm. just practice and doing that and so then then i was like you know this is a lot of fun um but there's a whole bunch of skills to acquire like in that arena because it's expensive to pay people to make like your puppets. And so if you learning how to make them, that's a good thing. Uh, having material is good too. Uh, I can be purely extemporaneous, but I had a hard time generating things to, mm-hmm. for just the puppets to do. I could kind of play a character sometimes, but then sometimes I would get stuck, not know what to say next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I, I really want to make YouTube videos. So I'm going to make, I'm going to make YouTube videos like with my, with my puppets and that'll be awesome. And then, you know, I have a friend of mine help me write and it's really ambitious. And I had this whole idea for a show and I'm like, you know, I've made a whole bunch of things. I've been Sandy, like I got invited by, I know what I'm doing. And so really super ambitious. Like I made a pilot completely on my own. Um, I, I started shooting like these short films and they were, and the, the pilot was terrible. It was just not, it just, just, it does not work. The music doesn't work. The jokes don't work. Nothing about it worked really, but there was something still there. And so then I thought like, well, you know, I know how to write and I can write long form stuff. And you know, maybe my friend can help me with writing these really short sketches. Cause it's like, how how hard is a sketch? So it's just like, what, three pages of stuff that can't be hard. And so I had this really ambitious schedule where I was going to write three sketches a week and then shoot uh, at least two every week and then do that like for a year. Cause I thought like, Oh yeah, I'd have like a hundred of these short videos and that's awesome. And then I got to like video 10 and I had, I started to have a nervous breakdown in my living room because it's hard. It's so hard to write the sketches it's so much like work. I mean, writing like three pages of really good tight sketch material is just very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's a, a very obvious thing to say for anybody who's, who's done this before, but <laughs> it's like, um, you know, and so then, so then part of me is also like also having the realization that like, okay, you need to calm down because you're having a, you're having a mental meltdown over some, some puppets that you're wiggling in front of the camera in these short videos. So you got to chill. It's all right. You know? And then uh, I made the decision. I was like, you know what? I'll just take a class. Like I took classes in writing before there's got to just be some skill that you can develop like here. And so CB came first to mind, I think for, because of branding. And then uh, the magnet was also there because they would show up in searches when I would look for places to learn uh sketch. And then, then I also started to remember that oh i'd been to the magnet before to see shows, and oh yeah, you know u c b like I already knew that like from those like arenas too, and mm-hmm. then uh, uh this was like when there was o- I just happened to be making the decision to choose to write or to learn how to write at u c b right around the time that there was almost like a mad rush of people trying to take like those classes because this was like when. You would try to sign up for a UCP sketch class and it, they would post it and it would sell out like instantly mm-hmm. at that point. So I wrote some uh, I wrote some crappy software to sign up for me and, and cheated like <laughs> my way in because I was just like, well if that gonna sign up like that. I'll just have some software that does it for me and I felt bad afterwards because you know, that very first class, you know, everyone's a lot younger than me and they were mm-hmm. telling all these stories about how they got their clo got signed up for the class and then I'm like, oh, you know, I wrote some software, and I just felt weird, like about that. But uh, I also, which
1: is, am- uh, it's, but it's amazing that you wrote software to do that. I mean, like, it's one of those things where it's like, what can't Fred do? <laughs> because you, you've, you've well, <laughs> you're capable in so many ways. Well, yeah, it's like I can't, I
0: can't land a manager uh, or an agent. The last time that that came up, I freaked out and said, I don't want anything to do with this. And now it's like turning into many years ago. Um, or, you know, find like that, that hit that I can, you know, do something really awesome. Like with my friends, I'm I'm doing the really awesome stuff with my friends, uh, like you and other people. Yeah. Yeah. But the part like I really want to do is the part like where, we make like something awesome that the the public like really likes and it becomes sustainable mm-hmm. that I'm still figuring out. There's weird things. It's like, I've been in the industry like so long, there's weird parts of the industry that I still don't quite understand, which is the whole, how the, the the part like where you take a more managed, reasonable approach to finding representation. Like that part is like still, still like a little bit of a mystery like to me, but the part where, you know, if you want to figure out how much like something costs and, how to make a show like that part like I totally get too. Mm-hmm. Um and then also part of my personality is, is like I will I will dive like into things too because I really want to learn the thing as I'm doing it. And uh the Magnet was my backup plan originally for the UCB. It was like, well if my software doesn't work, uh Magnet also seems to have a class so maybe I could learn there too. And then originally my thought was well I'll sign up for the Magnet class if I get into the UCB class uh, I will drop the magnet class and just take the UCB class. But then I changed my mind. I just said, you know what? <laughs> and this, this was my initial thought was, you know what? I'll save time. I'll just have to write one sketch and then I can bring it to both classes. And then mm-hmm. they'll, I'll get feedback like from both teachers. And then both teachers will give me the same kind of feedback and that will help me make the sketches better. And that's not, that's not how it works at all. Like nice. the the pers- you can literally get advice from two different directors about the same material that's in completely different directions.
1: Oh and yeah,
0: I already yeah. knew from a creative perspective that that's a normal thing, but mm-hmm. for some reason mm-hmm. I found that shocking. Like when it came to sketch comedy, I was like, Wow, gosh, I I, I didn't realize Armando would have very different notes than Susan.
1: <laughs> right, I- that was something that uh, a recent guest was talking about about how she would give her work to one person and uh, they would say like oh you know i don't get this character and then she'd give it to someone else the same stuff uh, not worked on since given to the first person and that second person would say like oh you can't lose this character and it's like well these are <laughs> completely mm-hmm. different <laughs> and and it's like how do you know what to do <laughs> yeah
0: so it's like try to figure out how to navigate that and how to learn and I learned a lot at the ECB. I got all the way through that sketch program and then got to sign up like for the advanced classes. I started to notice just some different things. It's like the approach like is very different. It's really, there's like things like game and all that like still mattered. But the, to me, this is my impression of this. I, I'm not saying that there is like this necessarily stark difference, but my impression of the classes was I felt more character focused and sort of these other directions, like from the magnet too. And so, you know, originally like I had started all of this stuff because I wanted to get good at writing for my puppet characters. And then I just fell in love with writing sketches and doing comedy with all these people that are much younger than me. Um, which is still, I mean, in age, like I think I'm still fairly immature, like in some ways. So in some ways, like some of the people I work with are more mature, like from that perspective. But and it was just fun and getting to work with all kinds of awesome artists and on those skills, you know, just uh, learn, just write like so much, getting on a house team to me, the fun part of that is is that it's a way to just test material and just test your how you produce and how you write and and just getting like that stuff out like can you get fast at writing things can you get fast enough at writing something to share uh with someone else and and then what happens like when an audience sees it and i just got lucky like from from then on I, i wasn't so interested in like i must be on a ucb sketch team or i must be on a pit sketch team um I really did want to be on a magnet sketch team, mostly because of the of the improv there. Because while I'm learning all the sketch, I also decide, hey, you know what? I'll take like, some improv classes because I know how to be extemporaneous. But being a good improviser can really help you with that sort of short form writing because ultimately improv is you are doing writing. It's just that you're doing the first draft in front of an audience sometimes. And so... You know, depending on whether you're improvising in class or with your friends or whatever that looks like. But a lot of times, if it's at a show, it really is that you're just you're writing the first draft of a of a sketch or some piece of writing, like uh, with people there, and that's the thing that really started to change how I even approached writing stuff to begin with. Because I always had like good habits about producing like material, but the improv like was really freeing. And then Camp Magnet in the specific cracked open my brain about improv and and sketch writing because some somehow this spending time like at an adult summer camp playing make-believe like in the woods (laughs) with people Mm -hmm. somehow it it connected it connected something it connected something in my brain because it was like oh you know what when you write a sketch it's just like like you're doing an improv scene so maybe just try just try writing like that way so even even to then sometimes I would sit there and write and really think about the next line and then think about the next line and think about the next line and in general i don't do that anymore now i just write it all out and then see what's there and then to me it's like the difference between uh improv and sketch to me is really that uh in improv like whenever i've done like a show uh with anybody uh, sometimes afterwards you'll have that conversation where you 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 sort of start treating it like it was a, uh, like you were playing a soccer game or basketball or anything like that. And you talk about your moves and you talk mm-hmm. about your friends moves. And then sometimes it always comes up that like, Oh, you know what? What if I, I only just said like, but only just said like mincemeat. Oh, mincemeat, like would have killed. Yeah. You said poking, <laughs> but whoa mincemeat that would have, yeah, no, totally. And, and so it's like in my head that became like, oh, when you do a sketch, you can go back and say, you know what? Maybe, maybe mincemeat is better here than, than pumpkin or pumpkin is better than mincemeat or whatever, like that is, mm, like in the sketch. You basically, yeah. So that's, that was really kind of an interesting thing, like from the artistic perspective too. And so now it's like, I've got all these cool skills and these fun things that I like to do. And I have no idea if this is going to be, um, my, uh, profession but it's definitely like my passion and the thing that like i love to do and um but now it's like well you know i've got these skills and the whole reason i did this was this is literally years ago now at this point the pandemic kind of interrupted things which Mm -hmm. i know it's a cliche thing to say but it's still true Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's now it's like well you know what I, i did this like so that i wouldn't so I'd be able to just write these silly puppet videos, like, faster. <laughs> That's how I ended up, like, you know, with most of these things to begin with. And so it's like, all right, well, okay, maybe it's time to write some of those silly puppet videos again and put them out and see how people respond. That's going to be the real bummer,
1: is if I put some of those videos out and it's like, what two views. It's like, well, there's five years, but it was fun. Right. Well, you do a lot of stuff, man, and it's all, like, really inspiring because... I think where you come from with it is such a joyful place. I did a show that you had written, a play, and it involved puppets, kind of going back to your love of uh, The Muppet Show, uh, mm-hmm. because that was essentially what the play was. So it was really fun and really cool, but then you do what you do for a living, and and uh, you also, uh, when I remember we both recently submitted to Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and I yeah. For days, I was like working on my packet and just like so focus focused on it and and I wrote it and i I talked to you about you writing yours, and you told me that you had written you wrote one, and then, like the night before, you chucked it and wrote another one and I was like, "Oh gosh, that's so impressive <laughs> to me
0: <laughs> well they they were both still terrible, but you know it's still <laughs> but you know that's like, I don't know. It's like that. I, I remember it was, it was because John Lewis died and I hadn't, none of the mm. stuff I'd written had anything to do with that. And I was like, well, I really want to talk about this. But then even there, um, I made a mistake with that packet, like how that got put together. Like mm. uh, it's sort of, it's not quite like ignoring like the instructions, but m- more like paying attention to what's happening in, in late night where the sort of, I think there's even like books and even like some classes in New York will still teach that sort of Conan O'Brien to early Jimmy Fallon to Jay Leno to David Letterman sort of era uh, comedy, Mm -hmm. which is, again, it's not that long ago, Mm -hmm. but that style is here are 25 headlines and we make jokes like about all of those. Mm -hmm. That's not what any of the late night shows are doing anymore. Right. Um, Especially Kobe. You know, most of the late night shows they're telling they're telling like a story. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so that's that was part that's the part that I regretted was that I didn't do that. And I, I sort of was thinking about that, but I didn't quite just tell like a story. And I got good feedback like from them. Uh the first part the first part was weirdly validating because I had a feeling that if someone did give me feedback that this is what they would tell me. And that, that's what they said that, you know, our style is, you know, trying to tell like a story like through this and then still having like the jokes in there too, that you want to hang, hang those off of. And so the pattern is that from the, the pattern of it is that you're still doing set up jokes, set up joke, but the, the through line for all of that is this narrative that you're trying to tell about the day's events, which sometimes can mean that you hone in on, one event potentially or if you were going to hone in on the chaos like of everything that then that maybe that's the story too but um so that was good feedback to get because it's like well okay uh well all right dummy you know what you were supposed to do you just <laughs> didn't do it so maybe maybe next time uh but then the other one was uh i i gave him a sketch for this weird thing that i started working on which is uh the Werner herzog cooking show so it's like i made this <laughs> that was so funny, man. Thank you very much, Jason. It's appreciated whenever anyone is able to understand the Teutonic vibrations of a man like Werner Herzog. And so I just, I gave, him, I gave him, I gave him that one, and the feedback was, "We really like the sketch. It's so weird." I'm like, "All right, that's a good sign." So, um, it's like weird was good because it, I, you know, maybe made it stand out. So mm. I, you know, stop working trying to carve out like some time to work on that like right now, just maybe make that some dumb, more of those dumb like uh cooking tree house with wearing a uh kind of shorts and stuff too. But um but yeah. So that's I, I love the I love the art of it and getting to make a living at it would be definitely um definitely like a pretty cool privilege. That's I I find sure. Sarah Cooper really inspiring because of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's, she's blown up, and then she's got this new special that people are talking about. So, I mean, that's the way you want it to happen. And, uh, you yeah. know, you're so good at voices, and uh, you just had your Werner Herzog. I noticed something.
0: Neither of these impressions are great yet, but I noticed something. So, if you start with Kermit the Frog and make Kermit the Frog stoned, that's, that's the beginnings of a John C. Riley impression. Oh so it's God. like so, it is. So if you're like, hi-ho, this is Kirby D. Frog here speaking to you live with Jason Farr, and mm-hmm. then you just kind of make Kermit a little stone
1: that starts to get to John C. Riley, man, and he's like, in the movie Step Brothers with uh, Will Ferrell, and he's, he's a good guy, you know? But, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, that is 100% accurate. <laughs> that's, uh, so that's funny, I'm man. Pre-
0: I don't know. I was watching, I watched Magnolia earlier and I was listening to it and I I had my eyes shut for a second. I'm like, that sounds like with the Frog. That's so so
1: funny. Yeah. You know, that's how I think a lot of people, I've heard Dana Carvey will find ends like that, similar to that, to get someone's voice. Like you just take someone, one person's voice and you make it a little lazier and it can sound like somebody Mm -hmm. else. Uh, That's funny, man.
0: Yeah. And sometimes that's fun because (laughs) it's like, if. if you get like good at it, you've got a good impression of that person. But if you don't get good at it, you have like another weird yeah, character.
1: Well, and it's been shared on the podcast before when I was in Charleston, a friend, uh, Miley White Underwood, took a class where the instructor, an improv class where the instructor said, you can find a really great character if you do an impression that you can't do of somebody. Like if you do a bad impression of Christopher Walken, Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting (laughs) character maybe, you know? So they were suggesting to do that, to go in there hard and just give it all you've got to try to do an impression that is like a real stretch for you. And you'll have a pretty interesting character. And it's also, that also would be really easy for keeping a character because it's so easy to lose a character. But if you're always like, oh, just, Uh, try to do tom cruise (laughs) this this is my tom cruise character and so you just go in like that then you you know where you need to be it's a really smart hack
0: yeah like i can't really do a tom cruise impression but i know how i would try and it would just sort of come out yes jason (laughs) right absolutely i'm yes it's so there but you know when i was in Hollywood as a young guy, (laughs) then that's very different to being in Hollywood as who I am now. (laughs) <laughs> so it's like I that's, I can't do a Joker's impression, but you're right. That's like a that guy that's a fun whacked that's out a character, fun right
1: Character. There. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But we have reached the end of the episode. Unfortunately, obviously we're good friends, so we could talk forever about comedy, but we don't have that time in a podcast setting. But it is now time to create something together. Um okay. what should we try to create together? Oh, that's a great question. Maybe maybe
0: just a short scene.
1: Yeah, I haven't done that in a while on the podcast. I feel like so. Yeah, let's do a a, a short scene. Do You want to get a suggestion from the internet, or maybe we should do that trick of like let's let's pick a. I'll give you a celebrity to do an impression of. And <laughs> <laughs> you give me one. Okay. Okay, I'll give you one. Um, David Letterman. <laughs> All right, uh, and you get. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh. uh well,
0: <laughs> Jason, you've got a we've got a lung buster of a show happening here.
1: <laughs> try, I try my best to always be at my best. Mm. you gotta yeah. have the, you gotta have the manna of life, yeah, manna like the like
0: bread you need to eat you mm. eat bread paul does do you eat
1: bread? Paul doesn't eat bread Look, he's doing he's lie. doing the keto you think of oh well, I've been on that. You know why I was thinking once I was out on the on a on a motorcycle and I was thinking life is like bread because you can break it, you can break bread with people, do life with people, that is, or you know, you can bake it. Make something <laughs> else with it.
0: So did did you did you happen to have a joint? in the green room before you came out or, or is it just.
1: (laughs) Uh, I had one before I got in the green room when I was in the green room and then another one when I was standing outside the curtain before walking out of here. Oh,
0: well, that's good folks. That's good. So we're going to, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Matthew McConaughey. All right. Don't go anywhere. Oh and we're out. Whoa! So Matt, how how you doing? Like that's uh, we're a little kind of moment between the uh, before the next camera light comes back back on there. So how how are you doing? How
1: are things going? Things really are great. I meant what I said about the mana of life. You gotta grab okay. the life by the mana. Dave, have you grabbed the life by the mana? I I don't really grab a lot of mana.
0: Um, maybe, maybe grabbed a few too many skirts in the younger days, but, uh, these days mostly just, uh, grabbing that, uh, grabbing the paycheck.
1: Ah, all right. Well, you know, some, some people, you know, you got a check to pay and you got to pay to check. Remember that. You have a check to pay.
0: Mm-hmm. And a pay to check. Well, that's uh, certainly something. Uh, that's <laughs> something I
1: like to good live by. Advice
0: for <laughs> yeah, it's a good good one for the kids, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Trying to share something. Something I tell them, it to all
1: my so. kids, whether I'm teaching them uh, and they're my student kids or my kid kids, my actual blood kids right right yeah. are,
0: you still, are you, do you still have that airstream
1: I do I do you're
0: living in the, yeah so is that is that checking the pay or paying the check
1: <laughs> you got it man you figured it out <laughs>
0: well certainly certainly figured out
1: something there One after <laughs> All these years in, in good old New York City. That's right. Well, I'm from Texas. I'm a, I'm a Texan. We couldn't, do life a little couldn't different. Couldn't tell from I mean. your
0: accent. What? Yeah. I, I couldn't tell from your accent. It's very, <laughs> mid, very Midwestern.
1: <laughs> yes, my man. Mr. So, D. Uh, Letterman. The, <laughs> that's...
0: That is me. They call me Dave.
1: Ha! <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> scene. There it is. Fred, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, for sure. And thanks for having me on. And uh, you're awesome. And I uh, do really like the podcast. Well, Fred is awesome, but I'll tell you what, my Matthew McConaughey is not awesome. I hope you enjoyed listening to us chat and hearing his great stories. You can check out more of his stuff at thehelpmachine.com. We have a link in the bio for that. And he was also a few months ago in a podcast called Girl Tales, and it was the episode The Legend of Jewel, but it was spelled Y-U-W-U-L. It's on Apple Podcasts, so go look that up. Why don't you go listen to right now since you're probably still standing in line aren't you aren't you yeah i figured good for you and you can follow him on twitter at f dot and you can follow him on instagram at mr f dot and don't forget to follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at there it is pod go vote and be good to each other